Hello and welcome to my weekly podcast interview of In the House Seats with me, your host, Craig Bartley. This is where every Sunday we talk about all stuff regarding theatre, film, television and the ups and downs while training for the performing arts industry. Who knows, some things could even relate to your experiences as a theatre wannabe or participant. Or if you are a parent or guardian of a future performer, it may help you to understand about training and the entertainment industry from a different perspective and someone else's point of view. I will be speaking to professional performers, choreographers, adjudicators and industry leaders to find out more about them and their transitions and journeys from learning their crafts to the professionals that they are today. So for the next 30 minutes, all you need to do is sit back, relax, enjoy and listen with us. Today in the house seats, we have professional creative and West End director, Nigel West. Hello, Nigel. Hey, how are you doing? I'm very well. It's brilliant to have you with me today in the house seats. And I'm so excited to learn about your career and get the lowdown and your views about the industry and life in general. What a successful career path you have had with so much going on all the time. So tell us how it all started. Where did you grow up as a child? And where did you go to school academically? I grew up in, in Somerset, in Wellington, in Somerset, but I was never an academic. I left school uh, one week before my 16th birthday with no qualifications whatsoever. Well, I did get, I got some what we called CSEs in those days. They were like even, not, they weren't even O-level standard. So I left school with a CSE in drama, art, English, and then the pride of my qualifications was a Qualification of a CSE in Rural Studies, which I think basically meant picking up chicken's eggs and planting cabbages. And uh, <laughs> other than that, the best thing about school for me was the summer holidays or the holidays full stop. Uh, and I spent most of those on the farm. A friend of my parents had a farm and I would spend most of my time evenings and holidays on the farm riding horses. And I think age 13, I was driving Land Rovers and tractors around. And that was my sort of childhood, really. I understand you wanted to be a farmer, though, yeah? Yeah, well, I didn't. I don't know if I wanted it. I mean, the thing is, I was such an unacademic person, and I spent all my spare time on the farm. So for me, it seemed like a natural thing that, you know, by the time I was 14, I was learning how to shear sheep and shoe horses, and I was riding horses. And in fact, at one point, I think I was still about, I got to about 14, and I wanted to be, a, I thought I could be a jockey. And then, of course, I realized that I was well over six feet tall. <laughs> 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 it really never going to happen. And then it came to leaving school and uh, the farming thing wasn't really an option. And I just, my, my cousin of mine was a carpet fitter and I thought, well, I could do that. I was very good practically. So I thought well, I could go and do that. The, the irony is that I, I didn't even bother taking a maths exam because I was so not good at maths. And I went for an interview for a carpet fitter and came out as a salesman, of carpet salesman. And God knows how that happened because the whole thought of, of you know, Working out square yardage and and prices of carpets, um, I don't know how I got around it, but I did. That's what happened. <laughs> were your family into theatre and the arts? No, they weren't. My brother was an actor. Um, he was a regular on a programme years and years ago called Angels, and he trained at the Weber Douglas Academy that no longer exists, actually, in London, but it was one of the big respected training colleges. And, yeah, I remember uh, it. Yeah, he went, he went there, and I guess through him, I mean, I started doing Andrams when I was 
probably about 11, doing the local panto and, and appearing in the local Wellington Amateur Operatic Society's production of Oklahoma and South Pacific. And, <laughs> and you know, like so many people, I suppose. And my, my brother was in a production of a show called Trelawney of the Wells at the Brew House Theatre in Taunton. And uh, there was a girl in that that did a, a tap dance. And I think the character's name was Avonia Bunn, and she did a tap dance. And I think I was 50. I was late to the party. I think I was 15 at that point. And, and I saw her do this tap dance and thought, oh, I, I'd quite like a go at that. So I'm speedily enrolled in Marjorie Tattersall's, this is, I'm not making this up, the Marjorie <laughs> Tattersall School of Dancing in Taunton and, and started to learn tap. And she was absolutely terrifying. It was the classic, you know, pulled back, tight gray bun. And she old school. Old school. And, I, mean, it was, I think her mother also started the school. So her mother was like 95 and she'd have been about 65. And then I started tapping and, and learning to, you know, the whole dancing. I got the dance bug. Fantastic. But it wasn't until that late, you know, it was late on that I did that. And funny enough, when I left school, I would find myself in a, in a corridor of, of kitchen floor vinyl talking to customers, age 16, trying to flog vinyl and... and you know, subconsciously doing little tap steps. Tapping rhythms out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not knowing I was doing it. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Now, obviously, because of your keen eye in musical theatre productions, you have worked on. Did you train and in all varied styles? Did you do ballet as well? Well, yeah, there's the story because I, at 18, my brother was at, um, training at Weber Douglas in London. So I came up and I, I went and did some dance classes at Pineapple, which in those days was in Floral Street in, in London. It wasn't where it is now. Right. And I went and did some classes and I did a couple of classes at the Erdang. And the Erdang, again, was a place where you went and did casual class. It wasn't as it is now. And my choreographer called Robin Wimbo. Um, oh, Robin, yes. Yeah, I remember his name. He yeah. said, oh, you must come up to London and do, do dance, you know, train properly. So age 18, I, I left Somerset and I came up to live in my brother's flat in Deptford. And in and, and those days, Deptford was kind of different than it is now, I can tell you. I, I left Somerset without coming, you know, came to London without a job and without any official, you know, place in a, in a training establishment. Anyway, I looked in the evening. St- looked in the evening standard, and there was a job in in it. It was advertising for a West End store, working in a warehouse. I thought, well, I could go and do that, and I could work all day, and I can dance all night. So I went for this interview with this West End store, and it turned out to be Selfridges. And I went in for a job for what I thought was going to be unloading, you know, lorries in a warehouse. I came out as stock controller of ladies' rainwear. Now, <laughs> go figure, because again, no qualifications, read maths or additions or anything like that. And I, I did that for six months to a year. And I, I was at Selfridges all day. And then every night I would be at Pineapple or Erdang doing class. What a, what a ground, you know, training ground you're coming up through. Do you feel that it's compulsory to train in all musical theatre styles for today's casting and audition requirements? And to what extent? Oh God, I do. I think I think so now. I mean, I think when I was trying to do my thing as a as a young dancer, and we are talking late seventies, nineteen seventies. So we're going back a bit. I think we were probably fifteen years behind America 
in terms of training and, and, and how we trained people. We've certainly caught up now, but if you think about me and my girl, which I know you're familiar with, if you think about that company, it was a company of 36, which is now pretty much unheard of. And as you know, they were all rounders in the show, but it was a group of singers. It was a group of dancers and it was a group of actors, if you want to talk you know, that way about the principles. It was easier to, to work and get into those shows then, I think. But now, if you, if you want to equate it with something like Chicago, where you have to be a complete triple threat, it's more than ever that you have to do that. And, and, and also, if you think about something like the last West End show I did was Young Frankenstein. Well, that was a company, it was a fairly small company. But I think out of 14 ensemble, including swings, 12 of those have to understudy. Right. You know, right. You need, as you know, you need two sets of understudies. Yeah, yeah. And for, you know, for your principles. So... You know, you could only really take on two people that could dance and sing and, and you know, but, but the whole triple threat thing is becoming more and more important, I think, now. Yeah, as a requirement. Yeah. Now, as you know, I own a full-time vocational college. So what advice would you offer to vocational students, especially newly graduated performers, for them to get on in the profession? Okay, if I can go back a bit before that point... Because you said newly graduated, I think when you're in college, just get your head down and work. Because I do do some work associated with colleges from time to time. For me, going back to the whole me and my girl era and us being behind America, that our training was not as good. Any work I do in a college is about getting students through the audition process. Because if you don't get through that audition process, then you know you don't work. Yeah. And you can learn all you want, but actually, you have to be able to walk into that room and present yourself clearly and confidently. And my biggest thing whenever I work with students is to say, just make sure you get your repertoire, your graduation repertoire together. Have a couple of monologues in your pocket. Have a few songs of, you know, appropriate styles for appropriate musicals that if someone shines a light in your face in the middle of the night, you can sit up and they just spew out of you. What you don't want to be doing is getting a call from an agent and saying you have an audition the next day or, you know, two days later and be stressing about it. You know, the audition, audition process is stressful enough as it is. I talk about two initials. One is the P word and one is the A word. And the P word is, is preparation. If you're prepared and you have your repertoire ready for your auditions, then it gets rid of the A word, which is the anxiety. And I don't think you're a human being if you're not anxious about doing an audition. But if you have that preparation, if you're ready, then actually an audition can be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I would say is, is, is and I'll use Susan Stroman's, what Susan Stroman always looks for, and she says, I just want my performers to be fearless. Be fearless. Go in, have a go, do what you do, and then leave, and leave knowing that you've done the best you can possibly do, and then you have no regrets. Now, in 1983, you joined the Bristol Old Vic Theatre Company and then working on 29 productions over a three-year period, ranging from Richard III to Judy the Musical that later transferred to London. Your career has gone from strength to strength, now working on many West End shows. For those, tell us about the working in those 29 productions during your time in Bristol. Bristol was a really special time for me because I didn't... Because I initially trained and wanted to be a dancer. And then age 20, and long story short, age 21, I split a disc in my lower back and it stopped me dancing. 
So that was a big old career jump for me. But I happened to have been working as a volunteer stage manager at the Brewhouse Theatre in Taunton. And so I had a little bit of stage management knowledge. Anyway, the whole back thing happened. And I got into Bristol Vic as a stage manager and went into that establishment and did, like I say, as you just said, work, worked on Richard II to musicals, to comedy, to Eggborn, to um, Webster's. To, and I had this variety of shows that I worked on, but I worked on them as a stage manager, not as a director. And again, I say this to students, you learn so much from observing. And actually, through that time at Bristol, as a stage manager, I watched a lot of directors direct. And I learned, I think, I think I learned how not to direct. I saw directors really rub people up the wrong way. I saw very established and respected actors disappear in their performance values and levels because there was a conflict between them and the director in the room. So Bristol Vic for me was three years of the best possible training I could possibly have had. I, mean, I never set out to be a director. I, you know, I became a stage manager and then got moved sideways into the world of directing on me and my girl. But to sit and just watch those people direct and watch how actors responded to the direction or didn't respond or retaliated, for me, that was, that was my great, it was a great training ground. Yeah, of course. That actually does lead me nicely into my next question. Because we actually first met when we were working together on the production of Me and My Girl at London's Adelphi Theatre. This is where in 1988, you did become promoted to Associate Director of the show under the late great director Mike Ockrent and continued this collaboration in the show for a 10-year duration. What was it like to have this teaming up with Mike? Mike was my mentor. He was probably a little undervalued, but between him and Stephen Fry and what they created with on me and my girl as a comedy musical theater you know comedy theater director he was a genius like i say he was my mentor and i learned practically most things from him and he was completely trustworthy he knew me initially as a stage manager i got moved sideways into associate director you know being an associate is kind of interesting because you have to think for what you think and you have to try and look after your actor you have to try and look after your understudies but Ultimately, you have to think about what the original director would want, what Mike would want. And it was a real, it was a real sort of craft for me to learn how to look after an actor and how to look after an understudy. Uh, still have a point of view personally, but ultimately know that I have to represent Mike or Walter, Bobby or Stroman, whoever, whose shows I'm looking after. And he was a generous enough man to allow me to have that training period and I owe an awful lot to Mike. You know, I was with him for 10 years. And after me and my girl, we, of course, crazy for you happened. And then after that, we would have, you know, there would have, there was a gap for us working together. But then he starts to work on the producers. But that was another story. You might want to get to that later. Sure, we'll get to that a bit later, that one. You then went on to directing the show on the first UK national tour and also the role as production consultant taking it to Stockholm, where the show was produced in Swedish, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, receiving the Best Director nominations for the Canadian and Australian productions. How was this accolade for you? It was very nice. As an associate, I always feels a bit of a, a, bit of a fraud, really, because ultimately you're creating an original director's work. But it, it was nice to be, nice be recognised, even when you are an associate. You still have to go and do the audition process from scratch. You, you know, the January Mike or whatever director I'm working for doesn't come into the rehearsal room. So it is creating the whole thing. And it is a package that you have to recreate for those people. 
interestingly enough, I think having done some of my own productions, it's actually easier doing your own productions than it is being an associate. Because mm. when you're doing your own work, you're thinking about your actors and you're thinking about what you want and what your co-creatives want. As an associate, then you're thinking about a much bigger picture, you know, because ultimately yeah. you have to work, you, you know, we're all answerable to somebody. And in those situations, I was answerable to my original creators. And it's, I guess it's uh, slightly harder to get that replication of the original works absolutely accurate on their behalf. Yeah, yeah, it is and it isn't. Like, just jumping through to, to Chicago, I remember going to Argentina to, to direct a production of Chicago. And I thought going into Argentina, you know, it would be Latino women who would be fiery and, and be really fantastic for the cell block monologues. And I guess my point is that every, you know, every country is different. Mm. And I arrived in, in Argentina. And when you, when you audition in a foreign land, you don't know what the bar is in terms of talent. You have to go through one, maybe two days of auditions to know what level you need to set the production at and what, you know, where you start to recall people or where you don't start to recall people. And I remember arriving in Argentina and think this is going to be amazing. And the women were so timid uh, and I couldn't understand why. And it was actually at that point that I learned that, because I thought the whole tango, the aggression of the tango was... I didn't realize it was about male domination. Yeah, absolutely. Work is about male domination. So the yeah. ladies are absolutely put upon and, and they are dominated by these males. So I expected these ladies to come into this audition like, you know, wildcats. And they were all very timid. And it took six weeks of, of rehearsal and then a couple of weeks of playing to get that aggression out of, out of those ladies. And when they got it, my God, they got it. Mm. But the process was was difficult and quite long. Let's talk about having the production in Swedish in Me and My Girl. How was that? How did that translate? Did it translate well? And was it hard to do the translation while acting? It was interesting because actually that was my first foreign production that I'd, I'd done. And of course, I suddenly ended up in, in Sweden and didn't speak, obviously didn't speak Swedish. Um, but of course, I knew the show so well. I had to look at the sentence structures within the script because you know some words that would land comedically would land on the end of a sentence or right. would land in the middle of a sentence and not on the end of a sentence so some of the laughs weren't coming so then we had to figure out why the laughs weren't coming it's because the tag of the gag was in the middle of a sentence right so that was an interesting process but actually i knew the script so well that and the people were very grateful for the show going there the actors the company were fantastic it went well people got it it worked but I think, again, you know, if you know what the product is and you know what, where the laugh should be and you know the story, then you can make it work. I mean, it's the same, you know, I, I directed the producers in Berlin and in Vienna in German. I don't speak German. Same with Chicago. I did that in Madrid and in Argentina. I don't speak Spanish. But if you know the sentence structures and you know what the story is, then you can figure it out between you. Right. This is so great that I have you here in the house seats today, as I've obviously not caught up with you for such a long time. And it's way overdue, having known you now for 33 years. Oh, God. <laughs> I know, it's shocking, isn't it? But before we chat a little bit about your professional career a little bit more, tell us about your stunning home in France. It's in the Charente, it's in the Midwest of France, and it's in the middle of nowhere. And it's, it's modest, it's a farmhouse, but it's a good 
hideaway place. I mean, I was lucky enough to spend this summer there. Once we got out of lockdown, I was lucky enough to spend this summer there. And it's great. I can get down there and I'm able to cycle and swim and cook and do the garden. It's, it's a lot. It's too much land, actually. But yeah, we're very lucky to have that. So you're actually going back in time to your farming want, wannabe days. Absolutely, you're right. Yeah, I mean, actually, the area around there is does remind me of Somerset, where, where I am. And it's absolutely that. I mean, Robert, my partner, when we moved into the house, it was it was empty and, and we had to go and obviously buy furniture. And we had to go and the first thing we did was went to the, the local store, which was about, yeah, well, it was a local store, which was about eight kilometers away. And we we're sort of eight kilometers from anywhere. And we bought four beds and for the house. And then the second thing, he's never forgiven me for this, but the second thing I, I had to go and buy was my sit-on lawnmower. So you're right, absolutely. <laughs> Back to uh, my farming days, but it, yeah, it's a great cut off for me. And, and you know, having it's, I'm very lucky to have it. Oh, how fantastic! If you were given a chance to do a West End production to work on right now, what would it be and why? Uh, a show that I really love, and I did I did get to do it. Um, Stephen Muir and I did a production of it in Canada, but that I would love to do again. And it's it it won't happen, I don't think, because it's a it's a sweet boutique show. Um, is she loves me? I love that show. I love a book musical. She loves me has fantastic characters. It's a really sweet story and great music. It's at the Savoy Theatre with Ruthie Henshaw years ago. It, it was, yeah, yeah, it was. Robert was MD on it. But, oh, um, was he? Okay. But uh, yeah, it was, and it, it did well, uh, but it didn't do well enough. It's never really been a, a successful show, but in terms of, of, a, of, of a show that, that I'm fond of, yeah, I love that show. I've worked on some amazing productions, although one in particular was the Broadway Tony and Olivia Award winning Crazy For You, where you worked as associate director on the West End production, then going on to direct the show for Australia and South Africa. Tell us about this, as I love this Gershwin piece. It was a special time because it was really, again, it was, it was my Cochrane and Susan Stroman's first collaboration as creatives. And then, of course, I got luckily brought on board because of my association with Mike Ockren. But it was a special time because it was like bringing the good old-fashioned American musical theatre comedy, you know, back into town. And Stroman's work on it was extraordinary. Mike is a director and, and his work with the comedy on the show was second to none. And also Cameron McIntosh had just renovated the Prince Edward Theatre and the timing was just right for everything. So the whole thing just came together and it was a beautiful production with a fantastic company. And yeah, they were special, special days. And, you know, the show ran for three years in the West End. But I think if, if you want to look at a show that has all the ingredients, you know, that along with the likes of something like the producers, they were the, they're the, they're the sort of the classic good old musical theatre shows, comedy shows that, that we need. Yeah, absolutely. When casting for productions, do you think that there should be fresh new faces in lead West End roles? Or do you prefer to work with guaranteed names that can deliver and you not take a chance on them? No, absolutely not. I'm all for bringing new people into the business and giving people a chance. I think it has to be realistically a mix. 
But um, I love discovering new people. When I was doing Beauty and the Beast, we did a, an audition one Sunday. I don't know what we were thinking, but we did an audition for uh, singers uh, on a Sunday. It was me, Jay Alexander. I forget who else was involved, but uh, we got in at ten on, on at the Dominion Theatre at ten o'clock on a Sunday morning, and there were queues around the block, and we were all very lovely. And we auditioned a lot of people that day, and it got to that awful point in the afternoon where we did what we don't generally do. We probably do do it a bit more now in the UK, but he got down to doing 36, just 36 bars or whatever of the song. Uh, and we discovered a girl in that audition day. We didn't take many people. We didn't record many people, but we did discover a lady, young lady in that show. And she was got hired and ended up playing Belle as an understudy and then went on to have a very successful career of her own is now um, working on Broadway. And I think it's important. I, I get a kick out of finding new talent. And I think absolutely... You know, a lot of people talk to me and say, oh, I don't have an agent, I don't have this. And, and I think if you can just get your foot in a door of an audition and, and people say to me, do I care if someone's got an agent? Do I care if some, what someone's done? If they can come in and they have a raw talent and, they, and I feel that they're suitable and I feel that it's worth working with them. And again, if they're fearless, then I find that really exciting. And I don't, I'm all for new people getting employed. Changing the subject from work and productions, what have you been up to in lockdown and have you learnt any new skills or taken up a new creative hobby? <laughs> Where to start? I'm, no, I love to cook, so I cook a lot. I'm going through an auto-length period at the moment, so I love to go and buy. I don't go out so much, and of course we can't go out so much right now, so I'm all for buying good ingredients and spending hours in the kitchen, whether it be in here uh, in London or, or in France. Um, I like that. I like to garden. If I'm in France, I'm you know, I have too much garden to do, so that's great. I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I've. it sounds worse than it is because she can't use it anymore. I've stolen my mother's old sewing machine and I'm making things with a sewing machine. <laughs> making face you. I love it. I love it. Would you ever consider going on something like Bake Off or MasterChef? No, I would not. It's weird. I don't, um, and uh, I don't like competition programs. I like the pro- I like the James Martin Saturday mornings. I like the, the casual cooking. I don't want to be competitive. I'm competitive. You know, our industry is competitive enough. So actually, for me, cooking is an absolute de-stressing something that I have to have time to do, and I have to have time to go to the supermarket and buy the produce, and then or the market or whatever, and then I come home and and I spend my afternoon or whatever doing it. I don't know. I'm not into the the things <laughs> at all. So it's just a personal joy then. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. that's really cool. Have you ever worked in any other job than show business? I did do a little stint. <laughs> I did do a little stint going when I first came back from London when I was, I think I was 20. I came back to London, to Somerset for a while. And I ended up getting a job selling car components around garages. And it was a bizarre setup because I was still wanting to do the dance thing. So I would be going around car garages and selling car components, clutches and brake pads and God knows what. And the guys, you know, the grease monkeys would be saying to me, bearing in mind, we're in Somerset. So they would say to me, you're what are you doing tonight after work? And I'd be saying, well, I'm just going down the pub with my mates. The reality was I was actually going to a little town in Somerset called Wivaliscombe because I'd found a ex-Royal Ballet teacher. Oh, and I was pulling on a pair of t- 20 years old. I would leave my job selling car components. And I would go to this skittle alley in a pub with this ex-Royal Ballet School teacher. 
and I would pull on a pair of tights and I would do ballet classes all evening. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> do you think they'd have seen what you in a different light? What are the other? I don't know. <laughs> as a director, you have worked on productions such as Closer Than Ever, She Loves Me, Misery, Blue Remembered Hills, and various regional pantomimes, and even a one-woman show called Just For Joe, produced for the Edinburgh Festival before embarking on a Scottish tour. What was it like to be in the actual director's driving seat for these productions? as you are able to put your own stamp on the piece as your own. It's way, it's well, like I think I said earlier, it's way easier because you're not having to think for your original creator. So to be able to go into an environment and cast for yourself and, you know, find your own creative team and, find, and co-create with a, with a lighting designer and co-create with a set designer is fantastic. And actually with the first few plays I did, I thought, oh my God, this is so much easier than, than doing the old big old, you know, musicals have this weird reputation as being easy fodder as being something that's easy to produce and work on and perform in. And actually, I think it's the most, especially musical comedy, is the most difficult art form there probably is in terms of the all the disciplines that you have to cover. So when I suddenly found myself, direct, and when I did Blue Remembers Hills, it was, you know, it was me and seven actors in a rehearsal room. And we, you'd get to five o'clock in the evening and you say, okay, great, thanks very much, or six o'clock, and I'll see you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. You don't have to then go off and find your musical director and find out what he wants the next day or find your choreographer and find out what she wants or what he wants the next day. The whole process was much easier. And actually, I've, you know, I've been so blessed in the shows that I've done in terms of doing the big, spectacular productions, but I've had a, a lot of fun and probably in, in a way different, not the most fun, but different fun on just doing... The one-woman show that I did with Brenda Cochran for the Edinburgh Festival, and it's just her and me and a pianist in a room, you know. And wow. you, you create something that becomes special and, and, and is so intimate and so connected. But, but I think, yeah, it's great. But you know what? I'll take it all. I'm, I'm, I've been fortunate, so I'm, I'm happy to have the variety. Yes, because one of the jobs that you did, you did take a step back to associate director on Beauty and the Beast at London's Dominion Theatre for Disney. I'm assuming the reason for this was that the show was already running on Broadway and needed replication of an existing directed Disney hit. Yeah, I got taken to, I got flown across to New York and, and, and met the Disney folks because that was the, you know, Beauty and the Beast then was the first big Dis- Disney musical. And yeah. Yeah, coming into town was a big deal. And I'd, I'd had, a, I guess, off the back of me and my girl and then crazy for you. I, I earned myself a little reputation. So I got flown to New York and, and met the Disney folk and, and the director and then moved into the Dominion with it and had a six-week rehearsal period in, at, um, I think it was Alford House. And then we moved into town. And that was, again, that was a special time because it was such a big, it was a big, fantastic production. And um, yeah, it, it felt it felt like a development in my career, not a, not a backward step at all, actually. Right. You then went across town to become the resident director on the revival of Chicago, the musical at the Adelphi Theatre, before directing the show yourself for Buenos Aires, Mexico City, Dusseldorf, Australia, Singapore, Korea, Madrid, Barcelona, before it returned back to its London residency at the Cambridge and then Garrick Theatres. Over the years and transfers, 
Has the production changed much? <laughs> it has not. And quite an old phrase, bus don't, you know, fix it. And no, it hasn't. It was a, it was a real template. And of course, when there's a certain amount of celebrity casting that went on with Chicago and you had to be able to adjust a little, depending on who was playing whatever role. But the, the format of the show never, never changed right. in, in any country, actually. That's um, really good because sometimes when you filter down a cast, cast to cast, and also sometimes with changes of venue, sometimes it loses certain aspects. Yeah, no, it didn't because actually, you know, they're very strict with the, with the show and, and the direction was always maintained and because it was fairly presentational because it was originally directed uh, as an off-Broadway encore production. That's what I think is weird about it, because with, with Chicago as a musical, the fact of it is it actually ran at the Cambridge Theatre London in a complete yeah. controversial, you know, conventional musical form with full sets and a gangster-style costume. Yeah. Then after a few years, a revival came out by adding scantily clad dancers with amazing physiques, and you've got the world hit that runs for years and years and years. What's the differentiation between the two? I think it's clever. I think there's well, two things, maybe three. There's, it's clever marketing. The imagery of the show is brilliant. Yeah. Red, black. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, the sexuality of the show that, it, you know, that those posters portray the imagery of the show and, you know, it, it's, it's sexual is the truth. And it therefore appeals to a younger audience. And then actually the show is still relevant in terms of corruption and all the stuff that's, that goes on, especially now if you want to contemporize it too. American politics. There's a, there's a whole load of reasons actually why this show is is a hit. But clever marketing, clever casting. I think that's probably the key to it. To be honest. Yeah, I do love it, and it's, there's nothing cliche about it. Even though you know what's coming, it runs beautifully, and it it does come from the top down. That's for sure. I think yeah, but I think what's clever about the show is, and what's really important about the show is when you direct that show you have to care about the characters and it's a really it's a really fine line because the big misconception of the show i think can easily be that if you are, if you allow but you've got to love billy flynn you know billy is mean to amos uh, when he says to him you're a damn liar i spoke to her mother you know her father five years ago and he told me she was blah 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 he's creating he's relating fact he's not he is being mean but he's telling the truth mm. Same with Velma. When Velma says, you know, when, when Roxy starts praying, oh, Jesus, Joseph, Mary, what am I going to do when she's first in prison? You know, Velma looks there and says, baby, you are talking to the wrong people. But she does it with irony. She doesn't do it as a venomous bitch. And if you're allowed to like the person, then you'll find them funny. You'll find the situation funny. Whereas if Velma was just aggressive and nasty, you wouldn't find her funny because you wouldn't like her. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's... That's the other key to the show is that people are allowed to get, people get what the, what the characters are and what the show is doing and the manipulation of people. But then you're allowed, therefore, to find it amusing, I suppose. And it's, so it's very, they're very cleverly crafted characters. Now, after you worked on Crazy For You, you grew a strong bond and collaborated as associate director with the amazing Broadway choreographer, Susan Stroman. This is where both Susan and yourself were working on shows with the legendary director, Mel Brooks. This time, you took out productions of the producers on the American National Tour and in my old stomping ground of Harris Casino Theatre in Atlantic City. 
<laughs> I saw this production in London and thought it was genius, yet somewhat controversial in places. How do you feel about that? You mean the, the Mel Brooks sense of humour? That Yeah, because, yeah. for instance, when we were at Drury Lane watching the show, who was, which we thought was hysterical, there was a row of people in front of us actually get up and walk out at springtime for Hitler. Really? That's interesting. Okay. The thing about Mel is, God love him, and we do love him, is that nothing is meant with Mel. He'll have a go at the Jews, he'll have a go at the gays, he'll have a go at anything that, that he wants to have a go at, but nothing is meant. It's all tongue-in-cheek. And that's probably a bit of a cop-out thing to say. Where that really came to light for me was I got to direct the first German-speaking production of the show in Vienna. It started in Vienna, but then it Ironically, it moved to the Admiral's Palast in Berlin. And the Admiral's Palast was, was Hitler's theatre. It was the, was the theatre that Hitler used to go to. And we arrived in Berlin for rehearsals. And there were big red flags all over the city. But instead of having swastikas on them, they had pretzels on them. And that, that was one of the advertising campaigns that the Admiral's Palace took on to promote the production. So we thought, oh my God, this is a bit, you know, a bit scary. And we went ahead and the show opened. And it was a bit like, it was a little this way in Vienna, but it was a little bit like watching the film, especially in Berlin. So at the end of springtime for Hitler, uh, the audience naturally went to applaud because it was a fantastic comedic production number. You know, Stroman's work was extraordinary. But people would go to um, applaud, and then as they went to applaud, would just check and look around them to make sure that it wasn't just them that was applauding, and that yeah. you know people were going with the flow. And on the on the whole, they did go with it. Some people got a little upset with it, but the people that came generally enjoyed the show. Um, it didn't do, if I'm honest, it didn't do great guns in Berlin. It did its run that it was supposed to do. I think they probably would have liked a bit longer out of it, but. A brave thing to do to take it to that country. But I remember doing a big press conference and it was a bit like question time. And it was me and three actors on stage. And the, f the first question was, do you think Germany is ready to laugh at Hitler? I think my response was something like, I hope so. We'll see. We'll find out because we, you know, we, hadn't, we hadn't opened at that point. Yeah, I love the show. I think it's, if you want to look at a, a structure, it has everything. I think it's a super production. It's the full package. And I, I remember, actually, ironically, weirdly enough, i just finished doing Chicago and I hadn't worked, I hadn't had a break in a lot of years. And Strowman said to me, do you want to do the producers in the West End? And I said, no, I, I turned it down. I didn't do it. Oh, wow. And then Strowman, being as loyal as she is, a couple of years later said, okay, you've had your break, you've gone off and done your plays and stuff. Do you want to now do a, a US tour of producers for me? And of course, I then jumped at it. Interestingly enough, going back to the associate thing, because I hadn't worked on the show in London, I had to learn the show, I had to learn producers to reproduce the producers from a video with no sound, because I wasn't allowed to have a video with sound on it. So I had a script in front of me and a video with no sound. That's how I learned the show. How weird is that? Mm. Hard, very hard. It was hard. After working in the States, you came back to London's West End, once again working with Stroman on a production of the Scottsboro Boys that ran at the Young Vic before transferring to the Garrick Theatre. Even though this was a superb production, 
After its closure, you then stayed on at the Garrick to become associate director for another amazing show, once again with Strowman and Mel Brooks in Young Frankenstein. I have to say, I absolutely adored this musical and really think it should have run for much longer as it was so... I was really desperate to be in the cast, that's for sure. <laughs> what was it like to work on such a superb piece? It was really exciting because the show had been done some years before in the States, and but the intention for Young Frankenstein was that it should be a vaudeville-style drop-cloth, cut-cloth show, and it should be in a small venue. And due to circumstances in America all those years before, it ended up being in a way, way, way bigger theatre than was initially intended. And therefore the sets grew and the whole production grew. And the theory was that the show got kind of lost a little bit. And it did okay on Broadway, and then it toured. Then it had a break, and then Mel Brooks went to Strowman and said, let's revisit the show, let's do it again, and let's do it smaller. And he cut a lot of the script, and he wrote some new songs and some new tunes. So it was, re it was really exciting, because it was like doing a new production, actually. I went to New York with the associate choreographer, Richard Pitt, and the dance captain, and we spent a week in a studio in New York with Strowman and her US associate and a company that she put together of people that she uses. And we just blocked through the show and we kind of re-blocked the show because Stro wasn't available to come to London for the first week of rehearsal. So the first week of rehearsal was just me with the company. And then the second week, Strowman turned up and we did we blocked through the show. And then the third week, Mr. Mel Brooks turns up, which in itself, as you can imagine, being in a rehearsal room with Mel Brooks is complete joy and, and initially intimidating and quite scaring for some people if you don't know Mel, because Mel has no filter. I mean, I think when we were rehearsing, he was 91 or 92, and he would turn up into rehearsal, and all, all you would, as he walked into rehearsal, all you, hear, all you would hear is, no, no, you're ruining the show. That's not what I, that's not what I want. <laughs> it would go, oh my God, you know. And of course, you realized when he did that day three that that was always going to be Mel's entrance into the rehearsal. Right. And of course, and actually, if you, in, in, you know, Stro and I used to split up on some rehearsals. So I'd be in one room rehearsing something, she'd be in another room rehearsing something. And there is a little bit of intimidation when you suddenly realize that the comedy genius Mel Brooks is sitting behind you in rehearsals and you're directing his books, you know, his work. His work, yeah. And it was a little intimidating for everyone. But once you got to know him, you know, you just love him. And he has this amazing energy. And, and he was, like I say, I think he was 92 then. But he was like a dog with a bone with the show. He was rapacious. He just wanted to get it right. And there was even one time we rehearsed for five weeks. He was with us the whole time. He stayed with the, show, the whole rehearsal period. Wow. Three months, practically. Well, th through the rehearsal period and then through previews. And we previewed at the Theatre Royal in Newcastle. But Mel was like a dog with a bone. And he, would, he kept rewriting. And he, you know, there was a, a new few new songs that he put into the show, and the the lead into them just wasn't right. And I found myself one day sitting in a dressing room in the theatre royal in Newcastle, and it was just me and Mel Brooks sitting in the dressing room. He went, "Get your laptop. You got your laptop. Get your laptop out." We're not okay, I'll get my laptop. <laughs> That's he starts uh, dictating to me as so I'm sitting typing on my little laptop. He went, "No, no, no. Try this. Try this." And we we spent like ten minutes rewriting the script. And then he said, okay, go and, go and give that to Hadley. I said, Mel, it's 20 past two. With the, the curtain goes up. It was a matinee day. I said, the curtain goes up at half past two. He said, no, no, go, go give it to him. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. I went, oh, okay. So I went to Hadley's dressing room. Hadley Fraser being the gentleman 
uh, genius that he is, went, okay, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do it, I'll put it in. And, and, and thankfully, it was a moment where he was reading from a, he was reading from a book, so we were able to stick this new piece of script inside the book, and Hadley did it, and of course, it was all, it was all great. But it wasn't until that night when I got home, or back to the hotel, and I thought, oh, my God, I was just in a room with Mel Brooks, and, you know, sort of, and he's dictating new script to me. Pretty amazing. Now, even though theatres are closed at present and productions are postponed until they open up again, is there anything else in the pipeline for you coming up, or can't you say? Well, there was. I was. I produced a, and wrote a, a sort of a chat show thing with um, an actor called Gregor Fisher, who people will know as Rabsy Nesbit, that sort of lovely, charming, uh, string-vested Scottish character, comedy character. You know, he's you know he's known for that, but actually he has a hell of a career because he was he was a side, alongside Bill Nye in Love Actually, and he played with Al Pacino in in Shakespeare films, and he you know his his career is vast, and we're friends. So I said, well, you know, why don't you why don't we do a chat? Why don't we do an evening with type show with just you and me on stage? And we did it last year in Glasgow, a one off try, and, and it went well, and uh, it got very nice notices. So. We set up a 15-day, initial 15-day tour, which was supposed to have happened in September. Oh, of course, right. yeah, we all got pipe-washed with our virus situation. And, um, and I was supposed to be directing another show in uh, October this year, now, actually. And it got moved, initially it got moved to spring 2021, but now it's just been moved to 2022. Well, at least you've got something to look forward to. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So to all my listeners, whatever Nigel works on next, I suggest that you look out for it as he usually works on fantastic large-scale hit shows. It has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today and learn about your career along with my listeners. Thank you so much, Nigel. You are very welcome. You are very welcome. It was a pleasure. Well, unfortunately, that's it for this week. However, don't forget to tune in every Sunday for my next guest in the house seats. Chat soon. This broadcast can be heard on my website at www.craigbartley.com or tune in on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher Worldwide and Google Podcasts by looking up In the House Seats with Craig Bartley.